These guys were building cars that were you get your, your pulse to quicken it. When you see them, they're just very sexy cars. And that's what design is all about. And that's what are my interest. That's what Mike's interest. It's not that we're bored with American cars. I want to see more American cars. Where are they? And the answer is they lie in the post-war design and build yourself automobiles, cars that no one knew existed. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for joining me for a special bonus episode of the show this week. And since it's Friday and you've been working so hard, I'll tell you what, why don't you take the rest of the week off, maybe kick up your heels and pour yourself a frosty beverage and settle in because I got a pretty interesting story for you about some very obscure cars. We're dialing the Wayback Machine to the 1950s when the miracle material of fiberglass allowed a small group of dreamers to turn their ideas into reality and build sexy sports car bodies for sale to the public. They had names like Victress, LaDowry, Glasspar, and Lancer. Now, you know, it's always a little bit of a struggle to talk about any car on the show because inevitably, unless it's something really familiar like a Corvette or a Model A Ford, you might not be able to visualize exactly what we're discussing. So today I'm going to say about 99% of you will not know these cars, maybe about 99.9% in fact. And seven decades on, my guests today have made these cars their stock in trade. Jeff Hacker is one of the founders of Undiscovered Classics, which is the world's most comprehensive digital archive for these fantastical fiberglass rides. And Mike Puma is Jeff's right-hand man. Together, they research, catalog, and seek out the exotic and extraordinary coupes and roadsters of a time long past. And on March 5th, they'll be assembling some of the cream of the crop at the Amelia Island Concorde Elegance in a special class called Fiberglass Dreams. Now, these cars are rarely shown in public, and chances are you've never seen one, but they represent a particularly optimistic period in automotive history after World War II when the sports car craze exploded and a regular guy like you and me could order a swoopy sporting body from an advertisement in the back of a magazine and then put in some nights and weekends in the garage with a donor chassis and drivetrain and build something really unique. Now for this episode it's going to be really helpful to see what we're talking about here. So if you go to horsepowerheritage.com and click on the section of the website called Exhaust Notes, there's a photo gallery of these cars there to show you what we're talking about. It'll be a good point of reference for you. And if you want to take a really deep dive, visit their website at undiscoveredclassics.com and check that out, and prepare to go straight down the rabbit hole. From racy to ridiculous, it's all there. And by the way, some of these cars and fiberglass bodies are still out there in the world, sitting in dusty garages, waiting undisturbed for decades for their day of resurrection. And you might be able to find one. It's automotive archaeology. My guests are Jeff Hacker and Mike Puma from Undiscovered Classics. And that's coming up right after this. Hi guys, Maurice Merrick here, and I want to tell you what's new at Model Citizen Diecast. First, there's the 1971 Mario Andretti Ferrari 312 B2. 
It's a Formula One car in 143rd scale, and it's perfect for that shelf in your office. Or how about a pair of 1966 Porsche 906s, both from the Targa Florio and in different liveries, also in 143rd scale. And you can see these and many more special cars at ModelCitizenDieCast.com. Use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout for 10% off your order. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Welcome, guys. I've really been looking forward to this. Um, we're going to be talking about some stuff today that I don't haven't really touched on much on the show before. You know, I had Kevin Callahan on the show from Devon Sports Cars. But in terms of amazing, low-production, fiberglass, American sports cars, I mean, we're really going to get in deep today, I think. So, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Mike, you around there? Uh, yep, yep. Happy to be here, too. Thanks a lot. So, you guys are the team behind Undiscovered Classics. And, Jeff, basically, what is Undiscovered Classics? I, I run and create Undiscovered Classics. And, I don't know, I'm 60 now. And I've always liked the unusual what's on the periphery. So Undiscovered Classics, uh, different ways to describe it, is all about appreciating and celebrating, in this case, the hand-built efforts, what people created across the country in cars. And we actually have some cars that go back to the 1930s, and I've got some cars made in the 1980s. But the sweet spot is when that really happened in America, which was in the post-war years of building your own sports car. Building your own sports car also meant designing your own sports car for the most part. You know, it's interesting Fiberglass wasn't really an industrial material until the late 30s, really. I, so in my research, Owens Corning developed the production method for glass fiber. And then DuPont came in and they developed the resins to bond everything. And then, of course, the war allowed them to explore different industrial applications for it. And then, of course, after the war, it found a lot of civilian applications. Yeah, and I can say it a couple different ways. Um, and I want to circle back in just a minute about something else. But fiberglass is a medium to create cars. Fiberglass made it easy to do for what aluminum and steel made it hard to do. You know, we actually have a cars uh, we've had in past where a small company in the late um, 40s created dies, these drop hammer dies, and built what's called the Curtis Omohundro. I found a couple of them. And they, they went bankrupt building these dies so they could stamp aluminum and stamp metal. Well, compared to that to... What looks easy, but takes a great deal of skill of a building a shape in a form. So um, what's really interesting is, um, you know, I, I didn't mention, and this is looping back, I started Forgotten Fiberglass with Rick DeLury. Um, and that was our appreciation for cars based on a car I just found. I can get more into that if you'd like. But uh, I, when I found the Shark hardtop, a car I've been looking for 25 years, I wanted to learn more about fiberglass vintage cars. And there wasn't much research. My background is a PhD in industrial psychology. And, and I expected you wanted to find all this cool history and all these different cars, which I knew about. I'd been working in cars all my life, and there wasn't any. And I remember thinking to myself, God, I hope someone does the research, and I hope it's not me, because <laughs> I have other things I want to do, microphones and collectibles and so forth. But the other thing is, uh, and the most important thing is, it's never been about me. It's never. I may be a driven person, but right off from the start, my, my best friend and partner, Rick DeLue, and I were bringing as many people together. And... You mentioned earlier about Kevin Callahan and Devin. We worked from the get-go to combine all the groups under a rubric 
uh, Glasspar and Meteor and Buyers and Grantham Stardust and Venus and Chicago and all these other ones. So that all of these groups combined, because they all have similarities. Everyone was designing and building their own cars, either in companies or on their own. The Voodoo Gardener, the Siebler, one-off cars that uh, have been either are going or have been to Amelia Island, Concord Alliance. So the whole idea of fiberglass was simply a means to an end. It's something simple to do. And ironically, when World War II devastated Europe, um, they were working in old world steels and aluminum building original design sports car bodies. And we were doing what we consider the carbon fiber of its day, fiberglass. That was the wonder material. In fact, the coach building companies like Spahn and others, uh, Pininfarini, had a Fiat 8V in fiberglass. It's on our website if you wanted to see it. And they were building up custom body fiberglass to emulate what they thought was the best of what was being done in the world. And that was here in America. Now we think of fiberglass as a trash material, which is really amusing to me because if I say the words carbon fiber, then you get a lot of oohs and ahs. But um, really, fiberglass is simply a, a means to an end, a simpler way to do aluminum bodies and in many ways better, depending on what your company approach is. But the other part of Undiscovered Classics is all about Mike Puma, who's here with us today. It's all about all the different groups that we combine and all the different people that have joined us along the way. My best friend Rick had passed away, and Guy Durkin has been a part of this. You met Guy Maurice last year at Amelia Island with his Canera and the Victorus. Yes, I did. And Mike is, in fact, you probably would have met Mike last year briefly. I don't know if you met him. He was there last year, Mike. Yes. Yeah, briefly. We absolutely chatted. But it's never, if the, the more people cannot hear from me, and the more people can hear from Mike and others about this story and yourself, Maurice, taking it to your audience, the, the better it is because this story is about achievement. You know, someone built designing and building their own car and taking the average was 2000 hours is remarkable. So Mike, where do you come into the story with Jeff and what he's been doing? So I've been a lifelong car guy, grew up in a car family. My father and my uncle, both Cadillac guys. And I grew up kind of all around that working on things here and there and just going to car shows and appreciating them. But I just turned 33 and I've kind of been bored with classic cars for at least five years or more. And on eBay of all places, there appeared this listing, 1959, Other Make. And I looked at the photo and thought, well, that's certainly an interesting looking car. What is it? And then the description was about two sentences long. 1959 Ladari Conquest, prototype GE, experimental electric car. And I was like, okay, I've been a car guy forever what the heck is a Ladari? <laughs> Why have I never heard of it? So of course, you know, you do what everybody else does. You Google it and then bing, Jeff's website came up and it was like a massive deep dive into a rabbit hole of kind of what I've been looking for, for the missing link in the story of classic cars in America and this really interesting niche within a niche of the hobby. And with Undiscovered Classics and these interesting fiberglass cars, there's a whole world in the hobby that I think in large part because, of course, Jeff's work is finally coming to get to some level of appreciation. And I think that's culminated in a lot, including being at major concours. And this year, we're going to have our own class, Fiber Class Dreams, which has 10 of these cars in the class, which is a huge achievement. Yeah. And I think, I mean, most people know that the Corvette is really the most famous fiberglass sports car built in America. Fewer people know about the Kaiser Darren, which came right after. But you guys, you dive into the esoterica. You find the stuff that, uh, it, you know, the, the hen's teeth, right, of the fiberglass world. So let's talk about fiberglass dreams. Uh, yes, this will be the fourth time we're doing a class of fiberglass cars. Uh, and this is a result of Bill Warner and now Mikhail Haggerty's focus and interest 
on um, supporting unusual and cars of worthy of distinction. And that's what these cars are. And each time we do this, whether we do it at Amelia, but we're also doing it at Pebble this year called Dream Cars of the 50s. Remember, fiberglass is just a medium. So when I think of fiberglass, I'm known for vintage fiberglass. But really, I have a third of my collection is hand-built steel cars and hand-built aluminum cars. So Fiberglass Dreams on the East Coast is all about fiberglass. We have production cars. We've got Kevin Callahan joining us in the class from the president of Devon. He's got a car. We've got two cars coming from the Peterson Museum. The uh, Bosley will make his first appearance, Bosley Mark I. And um, they're also bringing a banger sports car race car, model number three, which you've never really named it. Noel Banger was an interesting guy. He didn't really name his cars because he wanted other people to name it. We wanted to, if, if Maurice Merrick built one, he wanted to call it the Merrick Special or the Puma, the, the Puma sports car, whatever. So, And that's a really cool idea. And a lot of people who built these cars, if they're in the family forever, they don't even know what the name of the car is because their grandfather built it. And they thought he built the whole body and everything. But think of the effort it takes to build a car. I'd call it the Jeff. But we have the Lay Museum participating. They've got the Renault Special called the Rogue, built in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. And um, we've got a couple one-offs. What do we have? Siebler is one, Mike. Mm -hmm. uh, the Thor is another. When I say one-offs, they one off. They built for families. So their friend and their family may have them. But it wasn't like Victorious or Glasspar where they sold them. You couldn't buy them. But we have a total of 10 cars. And you mentioned the Corvette already. We have the Lost Corvette prototype from 1954 was the 55 prototype that's going to make, as far as I can tell, its world's debut in our class. And that'll be the 10th car in our class. And Corvette is a cool car. And 54, they were you're going to see features on this car that, that were considered but not um, operationalized for 55, not put into place. But Harley Earl and, and General Motors hired the first two fiberglass guys as consultants. Um, I've got pictures of Bill Tritt at General Motors working with him and the Tritt family. The sons are still with us and their father was going to Detroit to help him understand high production fiberglass from their standpoint, maybe a few bodies a week. Um, and I've got newsreel from the 50s showing probably 20 bodies being made at a time over at Glasspar. Um, and then uh, Eric Irwin from the Lancer. Eric was also asked to come in. He never did, but we've got all the notes and everything about Harley Earl joining in because remember fiberglass cars in 1951-52, carbon fiber of its day. People would drive to see a carbon fiber now and they did back then. It was the people would go to see a fiberglass car in a show if there was one. God, in 1951, there were four cars, four fiberglass sports cars. 52, there were about 20. I think by the time the Corvette came out in 53, I've counted through 50 different companies. You could buy American sports cars, steel, aluminum, and fiberglass, I've had 35 of them. And you know, the Corvette, by the time it became available in the fall of 53, there are already 50 sports cars on the market. So back in the day, if I wanted to order a Victress or whatever make it was, how did they how were they sold to the public? Were they sold as complete cars? Were they sold as kits? Were there different options? Yes, to all that. So if you wanted to buy a car from Victress or Woodhill and so forth. They, most of these companies wouldn't build for yourself, but they had companies and, and more like people, small organizations that would build a car for you. And so I'm um, trying to think of one of the people, if you bought from Woodhill Wildfire, can you give me, can me finish one for me? Um, absolutely. Um, but we're going to do it through. Here's the people you can choose from to build your car. Because there were people who wanted to build cars, make money, and then get them to the people who were buying them. Um, but let's say you're going to, if you're going to build it yourself, you had a choice. You could make a frame yourself from scratch. Something were done. You could hire a company like Woodhill would actually build frames for people. I found a few cars, Mike, with, with Woodhill frames that have nothing to do with Woodhill. Um, you could have um, you could modify a Ford chassis 
you know, like they show you how in, in different kind of diagrams. You can buy a Curtis chassis or a Mameco chassis or a Chattanooga boiler tank chassis or a Sierra chassis. Some of those are new, Mike, um, or a triplex chassis. They're all built for these cars on an inch wheelbase. They were all building this to like the, uh, they're building all this infrastructure because people were going to be designing and building their own cars. But by the late fifties, that kind of changed because now more and more sports cars, even Corvettes and Ferraris and other cars are becoming available in the used market. And now there was less reason to build your own car, but there were still people who wanted to build their own cars. And that's kind of when what we call the second generation, Ladaris, Devons, Bocars, Kellisons, those kind of took off with a more of a, a little tighter approach to building your own car. But that first part, it took your own skills. You had to learn. And you could sometimes build your own chassis, buy your own chassis. Um, one of my uh, people I knew uh, decided to build his own. It, it took agreed upon about 2,000 hours to build a car if you had a body. It took another 1,000 hours to design and build your own body. So that means nothing until you realize from a human resource perspective that 2,000 hours is 50 weeks of 40-hour weeks and then two weeks off for a full year. So that's what it took to build one if you got a Victor's body. So obviously then one of the reasons these cars kind of faded into obscurity for the most part is because the buyer had to finish it, right? I mean, otherwise they're they're just kind of collecting dust in someone's garage. And that's why so many of them are undiscovered. Yeah, or unfinished. <laughs> unfinished too. It's not all that unsimilar to somebody who embarks on a nut and bolt restoration or even, you know, a mild restoration and then suddenly their car sits on jack stands for years and but you know to your point about how people found out about these cars print advertisement you know they were in the back of magazines but ladari was one of the more interesting ones and i guess kind of near and dear to my heart because that's what started it off for me with my own ladari conquest and if i'm recalling correctly ladari they were really great marketers i mean their brochures you know a lot of color photographs discussion of different models um some claims that might not have actually been true like Bodies were aerodynamically tested, which uh, Jeff later found out from Joan Dawes, the wife of Les Dawes from Ladari, uh, was, was a little bit of an overblown claim that didn't actually happen. But hey, you know, you got to you, you gotta puff yourself up a little bit when you're advertising. But Ladari offered four different options. Um, you get a body and that's it. No doors, no hood cut out. It was just the body. The second option would be the body with the doors and the hood cut out. The third would be all of that on a chassis. And the fourth would be a fully complete running driving car totally built. And as far as I think Jeff has figured out that nobody availed themselves of option four, there were no quote unquote yeah. production Ladaris. But I think that's not the case with Whittle Wildfire, right? There were what, 10 factory cars built? No, probably just a, just a very few. Uh, remember, these were fiberglass guys, and they were not car builders. So there's this funny kind of thing about ours. What you want to do is you'd like to find a car that was built by someone who really knew what they are doing. And there's some extraordinary cars out there. Guaranteed, the companies, and they'll be the first to tell you, I asked Bill, Bill Tritt from Glassbury, made 100 bodies. How many cars you built? None. Well, that wasn't really true. I had to kind of walk him through. He had companies that would build them for him that were factory cars. And that's not anything different than Europe and coach building and so forth. So he had preferred vendors who built the cars for him that were would also build cars for other people but these companies were not suited to build their own cars they were suited to build fiberglass bodies and that requires kind of a very special buyer right because the guy who in the mid 50s subscribed to popular mechanics and motor trend his approach to the hobby was all about building versus a guy who was just interested in sports cars and would maybe buy a Porsche 356 or an MG 
And I, I mean, all things being equal, if I was alive in the era with the mentality and personality I have now, I absolutely would have mailed away for probably multiples of these and unlikely would have finished any of them. <laughs> I'm much better at finishing projects now and prioritizing and giving focus to, but uh, build your own dream car, have a sports car, go racing. It's like, wow, yeah, who doesn't want to do that? Where can I send my money for my brochure and send me a body back? And then it would show up and I'd go, oh boy, I uh, underestimated how much this is going to take. <laughs> so you guys both mentioned Bill Tritt and Eric Irwin. Most people aren't going to be familiar with those names. So can you give us a little bit of background on those guys? Yeah, Bill Tritt, um, a lot of the fiberglass cars came out of people who were specializing in boats, and Bill Tritt was one of them. He was actually the first one, at least the first best known. We find an oddball thing done before him. But in 1951, two fiberglass cars were finished in May and June of that year, one by Bill Tritt and one by Eric Irwin. And both of them were boat builders. They were neighbors. I actually got a 1948 or 49 uh, aerial shot of um, Industrial Way, Costa Mesa, this is all boat country, you know, where boats are being built. Boundaries were on the same street, and these two guys were friends. One, I'm sure, influenced the other. Probably uh, um, Eric Irwin saw what was happening with Bill Tripp because Eric was a much smaller business, more his own stuff and some things for customers. So Tritt was well-known and had a successful boat company in 51, and his background was in that kind of engineering, that kind of design, meticulous. In fact, the glass bar bodies, you'll never find a bad one. They're just beautifully laid out in fiberglass, even trimmed out in aluminum, both for supporting the hood and the doors. Um, just a, a wonderfully built car. And many of the others are built nicely too, but not at that same level. So it's built at a boat level when you built working in a glass bar. And value is reflected. If you go to Haggerty Value Guide today, you'll see it, it's, things have been changing. But last time I checked, it was on the $120 or $130 or $30,000 number one condition Concours class. So, um, And the same thing for um, uh, Wildfires, which was a, a car that he designed later on. Eric Irwin, Boat Industry, um, another kind of uh, independent spirit, but not as business-oriented. But Eric's car is actually the very first famous fiberglass car and sports car in America by a few months. Uh, in November 51, he had an article in Motor Trend all about how to build your own fiberglass car. He came out with the first fiberglass book uh, on how to build a car with pictures and so forth, and then did several other books for the next few years. He built a total of six cars and about six more bodies from his notes indicate. So those are the two that kicked it off. Their two cars, respectively, uh, were shown in the November 1951 Peterson Motorama at the Pan Pacific Auditorium. And that Motorama is often confused with the other Motorama by General Motors, also held in the Pan Pacific Auditorium. And that sweet spot for American car shows, like 48 to 55, they were spectacular events. And after that, they became more common, and people still show, but nothing like those early years. And that's where our cars lay on top of this extraordinary events that were about 70 enormous shows in the country. Some point, Maurice, we want to do something on those spectacular shows because they were amazing kinds of events. We never talk about them anymore, but about seven years from post-war years. Hey guys, I'm curious about drivetrain and chassis on these cars. Did they follow a convention or were they kind of wildly different under the skin? All these sports cars, almost all of them, 80% of them, are 100-inch wheelbase. Corvette back in the day was just over 100 or just under 100. And that's, I think the ideal sports car people want to say is 94-inch, more like a Cobra. But American cars, 100-inch wheelbase, bigger, wider American track, um, you know, big cars. All of our cars are about the size of a Corvette. 
the first glass bar was built on a Willys chassis pre-war. Um, you'll sometimes hear people talking that the glass bar was built on a Jeep chassis. Oh, no, not really. Poor research and poor board. It was re it was built on a Willys pre-war, like a 41 or 42. Or The Gasser community loves those early Willys chassis, and you'll see Gassers, on, or they love the cars because they're that kind of smaller size, the size of a Corvette. And you could do that. We've got a couple of Willys chassis and a couple of glass bars that were built on them. Hard to find, though, not a, a, a prominent car. And four longitudinal springs. So, you know, I don't know. That's it, it, a lot of bouncing. They, they've got better, they had independent front suspension um, back then as well. So most of them started out in the early 50s as being modified Ford chassis. You'd get a Ford chassis, and then you would cut it, shorten it, and then you would see it which means lowering at the front and the back. So instead of having a straight axle that kind of goes from a straight back, not an axle, a chassis, you'd cut it and then drop it in the center so your seating area was lower and the car could be lower. And in fact, um, Mike recently came across some articles by Hellings, which was the Victorus vendor for a while, showing exactly where to cut and how to put uh, fish plates or gusseting plates to strengthen it. And That's a lot of work though, isn't it? Particularly when you don't have 18-volt Milwaukee Sausadals handy. I asked a lot of these guys, how did you how did you build the chassis? I just asked, tell me. He said, well, it took a long time, but the first week we got the hacksaw. We started cutting the chassis. What do you mean hacksaw? That's all we had, hacksaws, time and time and time again. be interesting to see what kind of tools they had because they didn't have craftsman tools. You know, They had big, heavy-duty tools. And, and the welding back then, if you don't understand how welding was done, stick welding, you tend to think of it as, as amateurish, but that's what they were doing. They didn't have nice MIG welders. They could do roll of dimes kind of welds. Um, and so if you restore a car beautifully and you do all these things, it's not going to be period correct, which is fine, but it's we've kept a few cars with all their original welds in it to show people. You saw the white car last year, Maurice, said Amelia. We kept all the welds in place because it was all done by the technical editor of Motor Trend, but it looks like it was done by my cousin. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Jeff, I want to pick up on a couple of those points quickly before I forget. So let me start with uh, the lost Motor Trend Victress, guys, Victress. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, because last year's Amelia was the first one I attended, and I'm very much looking forward to the next one in a couple of weeks, but the discussion around some of the higher-end cars on the show field and kind of the over-restored multiple restorations that some of these high-dollar cars have gone through, and talking about, say, Ferrari, for example, where you might have <laughs> on one side or the other, the doors are different lengths, or they had those kind of bubblegum welds originally, and they've been so over-restored that they've been made beautiful, but they're not necessarily how they would have been previously. So I think it's really interesting for some of these more special uh, high-profile cars that are in the collection or that continue to be found here for Undiscovered Classics, kind of maintain that uh, that standpoint, I think it's a really nice nod to the history of the car, and it doesn't try to gussy it up for anything that it wasn't. And one of the things that I kind of jokingly talk about um, when I explain how these cars came to be to some of my friends or some of the other folks I have in the car hobby here that I'm trying to be <laughs> become converts to build their own, I, I kind of call them reverse resto mods. You know, where now you go get a modern platform and you drop an old body on it, then you got an old platform and you dropped a new body on it because that's really all they had available to them in the era. So that continuation of kind of the hot riding theme of work with what you've got and fast is fast, I think has been kind of pervasive through the entirety of this corner of the hobby as well. And well, that brings up the question of how do you judge these cars, right? Because if it's a Bloomington gold Corvette, you know, there's a standard there, right? We know that if it's a Duesenberg, there's a standard and the list goes on and on. But as you say, a lot of these cars were one-offs. 
Um, production methods may have changed. So in terms of judging at a Concours event, is there a standard for these cars? It's very hard for people, judges, to, um, to take their skill and years of experience which could apply to the next set of cars, the next set of cars, and then look at the wide variety of cars. Here's one hand built by Maurice. Here's another one built by a company owned by Mike. How do you, and then if they're restored properly, they're whole different construction techniques. One was extremely famous. One was really not. One's making its world debut. Judging is difficult. And I concentrate on telling people that for 60 years, we've successfully ignored these cars in the classic cars. And we, we win if we attend, which we do regularly. And it's the trophies and recognition that I tend to like are what are called corporate awards, where it's a, you're, it's much harder because um, the corporate award we've won before. I've got some here. Um, most elegant sports car. You're judged against every car in the field, not the ones in your class. So concours expect the best of the best, as well as unusual and rare examples. And we fall in that second that second grouping, which to me, we're judging is... How, how do you how do you judge two cars that are completely different? And it's not easy. So I'm there as always a resource or reference for people. They can we can talk about what things have been restored, over restored, and so forth. But the challenge for us at Undiscover Classics in 2023 is getting the recognition for the cars so people have a chance to see for the first time the Thor, which will be in Amelia this year, never been seen in 60 years. The Siebler, first time in 60 years, it'll be seen. Those kinds of things. Interesting. Hey, by the way, I would love to talk more about the Victress cars. To my eye, they represent one of the most refined iterations of this class. So there's the 1955 Victress C2 and then the 58 C3. Amazing sports coupes. Yeah, the Victresses are really, really interesting. I mean, as far as... It's kind of like showing somebody your taste in music for the first time. You got to really make sure that you're either doing one of two things, uh, curating it for what they know or trying to do it broadly enough that they don't run away screaming, saying, oh my God, you've got horrible taste. So when you're trying to show somebody these cars from this corner of the hobby, Victress is way up on the list for what I'm trying to show to people, whether it be the S1, which is what uh, was at the Amelia last year, or the C2, C3 coupes, which is what we're going to have here this year. They're just really beautiful cars. And the DNA from where the C2 and C3 come from are really interesting. One of the things I'm looking forward to the most this year at Amelia is that we'll have Merrill Powell there on the show field, the, the man behind the design of the Victress C2 and C3 and co-founder of Victress. So Victress was started by Doc Boy Smith with Hugh Jorgensen as one of the designers, and he was behind the um, S1, S1A, and S5, which was heavily influenced by the uh, Bugafalte uh that's a hard car to say. The 1939 BMW Bugafalte Mil Roadster. <laughs> they made three so by Turing. Or, or, well, they made three different ones, and that's where the design was taken for the S1. And the goal was to out-jag the Jag. Uh, and in my opinion, they did a great job doing it. So one of the cars that most people will intrinsically say is beautiful and timeless is the Allied Swallow. And in part, it's because it's effectively a copy of the Cisitalia. And the way that car came to be was that Bob Peterson had purchased one for his collection. Um, there was this great series of articles where one of his staffers actually drove it all the way across the country to him. It was really, really incredible. In fact, um, something we highlighted on the Instagram page over the course of, a, of about 12 posts just to break it up. But 
the way the Allied Swallow came to be from the Cisitalia that Peterson had was the, <laughs> this really funny um, convergence of events where Bill Burke, or I'm sorry, yeah, Bill Burke. Bill Burke at the time was working for Bob Peterson, and there needed to be some repairs that was done that were done to the Cisitalia, so they were taken over to um, Bear's Custom Shop, and. Bill knew about that. And at the time, you know, Peterson was his boss. So this was a little bit risky, but they took a splash mold of his car and that's how they started producing the allied swallows. Well, what I came to find out recently directly from Merrill is that the influence of the C2, C3 being from the allied swallow via the Cisitalia is that they had one <laughs> and Merrill effectively covered it over in sculpting clay and, 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 and sculpted back down to get the design and the shape of the C2 and C3. And I said, well, Merrill, how much of the Swallow Cisitalia design is left over in your design of the C2, C3? And he kind of put his hand up towards the top of the windshield where it meets the roof. And he said, mm, just about this much. <laughs> so really not too much was shared with it by the time Merrill um, kind of made it his own. And it's just really interesting to have the C2 and the C3. There are effectively the same design, except one is on a 94 inch wheelbase and the other is on a hundred. Is that right, Jeff, for the wheelbase numbers? 94 and 100 is the wheelbase for um, for the two two models that they made, yes. I, I have to mention that even in period, the Chisitalia was exhibited at the Museum of Modern Art. So objectively, from day one, it was considered this, this wonderful, pure design, just very elegant. And I think one of the things that I've... I haven't necessarily heard it intrinsically, but you kind of see it in chatter and, you know, it just might just be people being people on the internet... But when it comes to the cars that we focus on, there does seem to be kind of uh, looking down your nose at them in a way. They, oh, it's just a kit car. Or, oh, it's fiberglass. It's plastic. You know, yada. It's just a copy of something else. Well, a lot of the designs that we're focused on are original or had influence from major, beautiful designs, timeless designs like this is Italia. And you know, arguably the best designs are usually stolen or influenced from somewhere else. So it's really not all that different than any other car that's been put out there, say, you know, on the production line, major manufacturing. Also, Mike, you know, hot rods were sort of looked down upon for decades and they've come into their own now. They're appreciated. So in a way, it's a parallel, right, to hot rods. Absolutely. That's the way I see it. Let's talk a little bit more about Merrill Powell. He's what, 92 years old? 92 years old, Merrill Powell, co-founder of Victris. Uh, he'll be 93 in April. I called him last week. He sounded out of breath. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm on the roof. I'm repairing the roof. I'm like, get off the damn roof. I said, oh, my God. He said, he said you're going to screw up the show for us at Amelia. Anyway, he's he's doing great. He's just talked to him yesterday. Uh, and he represents, uh, he's the last of the big hitters from the uh, Build It Yourself movement. Uh, he's We're honoring him this year at Amelia Island. And he is uh, was half of Victorus starting in 1953 and the designer of the cars Mike was talking about, the Victorus C2 and C3 coupes. And those Victorus cars, they sort of have some Zagato inspiration, right? The, the coupes. Yeah. yeah, they absolutely do. And something that I noticed about the rear end of the cars is the lines are very similar to the 61 Corvette rear end, which carried over into you know, the 63 Stingray and all that. Um, it, it's almost like GM stole a little bit from Victrus. Well, the, the, that model came out in what, 55, I think was the first year. Right. That's my point. So it's very interesting. 
Well, it is, but there's a lot of similarities in different cars, and that's perfectly fine. 1951, November, Walt Warren. Walt Warren was the tech that was the uh, senior editor, the person, not the publisher of Motor Trend, a senior editor. He was a friend of mine. He was in his 90s also. In 51, he wrote an article that said that you, people should be looking at what's happening in, here in California, in Los Angeles, because all the cool designs and builds are happening here with custom cars and others. This was just the birth of fiberglass, too. And he said, and it's a known fact um, and published fact that cars, and this was 51, designs from California were being readily taken and applied to cars in Detroit. And that's a good thing. You know, they were saying, look, you're having this influence on America and the world. And those kinds of articles appeared from 1951 through 1956, where styles and designs that were happening across America were being influenced. And in fact, if you're a custom car guy and you think of the custom cars that were being built in the late 50s, they started going to paint jobs, scallops and flames and all that stuff. And not so much custom built cars of design. And the reason is Detroit was doing it better. Show me a better car in 1958 than the Edsel in terms of custom cars with separate bumpers and a strange grill and a, a, a speedometer that looks like a flying saucer inside. That's the best damn custom car built in America in 58. All the um, Americas were, were basically in all the little bullet point grills. Look at the 59 Cadillac. I picked up one recently. It's a fantastic custom car. Detroit for a period of time, stole all the custom cars being built across America and did a better job at it. And then um, in the early 60s, went back to being creating square boxes like they did in the early 50s. So um, anyway, it's um, they were watching, to your point. They were watching and they were using and people were applauding the designs that were being shown in America. Across America, something else was happening. If you look at fiberglass cars and original designs, the closer they got to Detroit, the more Detroit they began looking. So you can only do this if you do all the research uh, and look at all the cars, but cars on the West Coast and East Coast look like European cars, other kind of cool cars. Cars from Chicago, the Chicagoan, cars from Detroit called the um, La Sierra. They look like they came right out of Detroit, squarish and boxish and so forth. The Venus, Mike, you know, from Texas, um, something called the Goff. So the closer to Detroit you got, the more it'll kind of look like Detroit, and the further away you got, they looked not like Detroit. So then was something else happening. So designs were being influenced regionally, nationally, and California. What were they called? We were talking about this recently, like uh, Little Detroit. They were calling Costa Mesa, where these cars were being built um, in an industrial way by Lancer and by uh, Bill Tritt and Eric Irwin. They called that in Fortune Magazine. Fortune, not Reader's Digest. Fortune Magazine, two times covered it. Uh, Nation's Business, another one. Little Detroit, that's what Costa Mesa was known as. We celebrate as a, or as a society the fantastic cars uh, that were built by Detroit. And you expect fantastic cars from any company that has a billion dollars. But what about Bill Tritt, who had a small company, or Dick Jones, who had no company in the Meteor? These guys were building cars that were you get your, your pulse to quicken. When you see them, they're just very sexy cars. And that's what design is all about. And that's what are my interest. That's what Mike's interest it's not that we're bored with American cars. I want to see more American cars. Where are they? And the answer is they lie in the post-war design and build yourself automobiles, of which there were 50 before the American sports car existed. Um, in some ways, I tell people that we specialize in finding cars that no one knew existed. Well, listen, it's really interesting stuff. It's a blind spot in my automotive knowledge, but I learned a lot today. Amelia Island Concours is... March 2nd through 5th. The big day is Sunday, right? The 5th. So I encourage people to visit the website, undiscoveredclassics.com. Of course, I'll have links in the show notes and um, an article up on horsepowerheritage.com. We'll have a gallery of some of these cars so that people can see 
the amazing shapes we're talking about. Jeff Hacker, Mike Puma, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having us. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review the show. Super important, and it really helps. I will see you back here on Wednesday, March 8th, for a story about the early days of Bentley motor cars. It's a fantastic tale of war and peace, innovation and uncertainty, and ultimately racing in the dark to victory. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.